Good morning, Sterling. I hope you're all doing really well. I am going to be using a music stand today so that we can all admire Mark Kay's beautiful handiwork behind me here. All the palm leaves and Hosanna, and it actually plays perfectly into the sermon for today. I also have a hidden superpower of forgetting things. And so if I don't go into detail on the palm crosses that are available after the service, please do remind me. It is going to be sitting right here in front of me, but I have a, I have a tendency to miss such things. And as Mark mentioned, we are taking a break from our letter to the Philippians for the, this Sunday and next Sunday as we get our hearts ready for Easter. And it's going to be really wonderful to just prepare our hearts for what Christ has done. It is a tremendous thing. It is a wonderful, feel-good message, this triumphal entry of Jesus. And so I'm really I'm looking forward to preaching today and every other day. But anyway, so today's message, there is going to be a question that I want you to have on your heart. And the question is this, how big is your Christ? How big is your Christ? And as Mark mentioned, the disciples and the crowd that's going to be welcoming Jesus in in the passage, they have an idea of who Jesus is. They have some sort of an understanding that he is not your ordinary person, but they don't know exactly who this Jesus is. And if we have a small pocket-sized view of Jesus, it will affect everything that we do. It affects what we give value to, how we live our lives, how we're going to make decisions. It'll affect everything. And so instead, what we need to do is be constantly reforming our view of who Jesus is to what we see in Scripture. When Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, he says uh, to the Lord, the Father, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And so if you find that you have a relationship with Christ where he just always agrees with you, (laughs) he always tells you exactly what you want to hear, you may want to just interrogate your view of Christ and say, is this the Jesus of Scripture. And this is important to Jesus. Jesus wants to make sure that we have a right understanding of who he is. And so one of the things that Jesus does in Mark chapter 8 is he performs a miracle to be a parable to his disciples. And because he's Jesus, he can do cool things like that. So what he does is he has just rebuked his disciples on a boat. They're going from one village to the next. And while they are there, Jesus rebukes them on the boat and he says, you guys don't have a right understanding. You do not perceive who I am. And so they get to the village and they bring a blind man to Jesus. And as this guy comes to Jesus and he's brought there, Jesus takes some mud and he takes some saliva and he puts it in the guy's eyes and he opens his eyes and he says, I see, but everybody looks like trees walking around. And Jesus then goes and he lays his hand on this person one more time and immediately this guy says, I see clearly. I can see everything. His sight is completely restored. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples who've been watching this is, you see me, but you don't really see me the way that I am. Jesus could have healed this person completely perfectly the first time. And yet he chooses to use this as a parable. The very next paragraph has Peter going, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we would look at these these, uh, verses this morning and we would say, if we've got a a view of Jesus that does not line up to Scripture, that we would see clearly. We would not see him as something that he is not. And maybe if you find yourself in the building this morning, you go, I maybe feel like that blind man. 
I feel as though I don't have the answers. There are many questions that I don't know what direction to turn in, that you would turn to Christ just as this guy did, and you would see that he can give you clear vision in exactly what is going on this morning. So I'm going to be preaching from John chapter 12, verse 12 to 19, but I'm going to be reading from verse 9 to 19 because there are a few verses just before that that are really important for us to take note of as far as context goes. It says, When the large crowd of the Jews learnt that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would expand our view and our vision of who you are this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes to the triumphant king that you are. I pray that we would have such a right understanding of your love for us, of your victory over sin and death. And Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. I cannot preach apart from you. And I pray that you'd give all of us ears to hear and to apply this message to our lives. I ask this in your name. Amen. So my first point for this morning, point number one is, what sort of a king can this be? Many people are coming to Jesus for different reasons. What we see at the start of John 12 is that there is this crowd of people drawing to Jesus because of what they saw in Lazarus's life. They would have seen Lazarus getting sick. They would have known that they need to try and help him. They see Lazarus getting sicker and sicker, and eventually he dies. And remember, there was this Jewish belief of, after three days, the, the body starts to decay massively, but the spirit is gone. There's no way that anything's going to happen to this person. Jesus waits four days to prove to them he is stronger than their tradition and that that is nonsense. He is the author of life. And so Jesus comes and raises this person. He doesn't do it with one or two people watching. There is a crowd of witnesses. And so this crowd sees Lazarus coming up. He's raised from the dead. And it is a miracle that they cannot deny. And so this crowd of people follow Jesus. They are witnessing that this person has raised Lazarus from the dead. And they even do it as they approach their, their capital, Jerusalem. Much to the dismay of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, far from being impressed with what has gone on recently, they start to try and throw more shade on Jesus' ministry. They say that there is no ways that these peasants have actually seen a miracle. They said there's nothing special about Jesus or Lazarus. They're just leading the people astray. 
And so what you see in the Pharisees is they show their true colors to you. Their hearts are stone cold. Rather than entertaining the fact that maybe this is the Messiah, if he has raised a person from the dead and done plenty of miracles before this, maybe he is the chosen Messiah. They say, here is our solution. We're going to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Stop this madness. Kill both of them, and then maybe these stories are going to stop. And far from them being content with just making their own decision and going, well, as for me, I'm going to choose to not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they've taken it upon themselves to say that I will do everything in my power to stop anybody from going to this Jesus. Jesus has rebuked them for this. He says, you aren't only satisfied with withholding yourself from eternal life, you stop others from entering as well. And so they are trying their best to stop this movement. But what we see from the crowd today is that they are quite unconcerned about the religious elites of their day. And what we see next is the Spirit of God stirring people to worship Jesus as their King, to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem, though they might not be entirely sure of who this Jesus is. You see that their hearts are welcoming Jesus. They've ripped palm branches off the trees in Jerusalem, and they have run to the entrance of Jerusalem to wave them around and welcome Jesus in. Palm branches in this time would have represented both victory and peace. And as you see what Jesus is about to do, and you look back, you look to our day and age, you'll see that what Christ has done completely is represented by victory and peace. But you must bear in mind that these these Jews in Jerusalem are not prepared for the way that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. They were hoping that Jesus would maybe bring along his war horse and his plate mail, maybe an unsheathed sword as he's going into Jerusalem and say, Men, get behind me. We are removing these Romans and these Greeks. They were praying that this Messiah would remove any sort of occupation over Jerusalem and set his people free. That's how they understood this freedom. But instead, Jesus is not after political power. You can see that Jesus has many opportunities to grasp this if he wants to. In John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He is a king, but we don't know what sort of king. And so the crowd begins to ask themselves, what sort of a king is this? Who is he? How do we approach this king? And what the crowd is busy chanting is so significant because they are quoting from Psalm 118 verse 25 when they are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a very significant psalm. The title of it is, His Steadfast Love Endures Forever. It is packed with prophecies about this Christ that would come. In verse 22 and 23, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. See, these builders would have been the Pharisees. They were supposed to be building God's house, making sure that the people were coming closer and closer to God, following them with their hearts inwardly, not just outwardly looking as though everything was right. And they see Jesus and they reject him. They cast him off. But God sees it fit to make his perfect son the cornerstone. Not just a spiritual brick in this house, but the spiritual foundation of everything that is going to come afterwards. Every other stone must find its place around this cornerstone of Christ. 
So rejected by the world, but completely used by God the Father. And Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26 goes on, and this is where we find our Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Hosanna, that this crowd is chanting as they're waving their palm branches and welcoming Jesus in, Hosanna comes from two words that are pushed together in the Hebrew language. The first one is, save us. And the next one is, we beseech you, we ask you, or if you're speaking to God, we pray. That's what we see in Psalm 118. Save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. And the very next verse, Psalm 118 verse 27, speaks about there being a festal sacrifice that must be bound, and then a sacrifice must take place. This crowd might not know exactly what they are busy chanting and what they are referring to as they welcome Jesus in, but it paints the beautiful story of the gospel that there is this rock that is rejected by the Pharisees, rejected by the religious elites, that is completely pulled in, and God sees it fit to build his entire kingdom on Christ. He is then welcomed in as as crowds are saying, save us, we pray, save us. And the very next thing that happens is there must be a sacrifice. He will be bound, and he will go to that cross. And we need to ask ourselves, why? What sort of a king would submit himself to this sort of treatment? And as we look to Psalm 118, we find our answer in the title. His steadfast love endures forever. He loves you, church. Why would he be willing to be bound and sacrificed? Because he loves you. And so he is a completely triumphant and victorious king, but he's a completely loving king as well. And that leads me to my second point for this morning, called the prophecy is true. John chapter 12, verse 14 and 15 says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy as he decides to go and ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And though the Jewish people would have hoped that he would bring out his war horse, maybe later on, and his plate mail and all of those things and remove the Romans, him being on a donkey is also significant. And these guys know that this would refer that, to the fact that Jesus is part of the king's household. Whenever you look throughout the, the book of Judges, you see that it says that the person who was the ruler, the main top, top pig, if he had 30 sons, those 30, 30 sons rode on the backs of donkeys. And so when you would see somebody riding on the back of a donkey, that was a special somebody. You wouldn't just treat them normally. Not just anybody would be able to go and sit on the back of a donkey and ride around on it. It was a special right reserved for those that were in the king's household. And so when you see Solomon first becoming a king, and there's a bit of a coup and an uprising that takes place, David says, quick, get me my donkey. We are going to put my son on this donkey and send him out. And then the people will know this is the king. We see in 2 Samuel 13 verse 29 as well. It says, then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. And so it is significant. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. And what John does is he quotes from Zechariah 9.9 to show us this person, this Jesus Christ, is the one who's, who is completely fulfilling this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
I'm going to read from verse 9 to 11 so you see the whole of what's happening here. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Beautiful prophecy. Starts off by saying, rejoice greatly. These guys are doing that. They have ripped palm branches off and they are losing their minds as they are busy waving it around, welcoming Jesus into their city. But it doesn't stop there. It says, your king is coming to you. This is wonderful news for the nation of Israel. What happened in the past is that God was their king. God is the one who redeemed them out of Egypt. He sent plagues. He sent miracles to feed them in the wilderness for 40 years. He led them into the promised land, and he was their king. And so the moment there was an issue in the land, they would turn to God, and God would answer. He was a good king. He was a righteous king. And the people, when they get into the promised land, they look around at the kingdoms around them, and they say they have kings over them, human people that they can see. We also want a king. And it grieves God. He says, am I not good enough to be a king for you? And he grants their request. And what you see from that moment on is that those kings, by and large, were dreadful kings. Even the best of them, David, had many faults, many issues that he fell into. But there were always promises that God would give his people that there would come a day when there would be a good king, where there would be a good Messiah, somebody who is both God and man, who would come and dwell with his people and he would stay on his throne and he would be king forever and ever and ever. And he would come from the line of David and we see today that Jesus completely fulfills every single prophecy about him. It says as well that righteous and having salvation is he. This means that Jesus is completely different from every other human being on the face of planet Earth. He is righteous. The Bible is painfully clear that Every single one of us have sinned against God. We've fallen short. We've lied. We've cheated. We've stolen. We've done dreadful things. Jesus is perfect in every single way. He has never even sinned in his thoughts. He's holy and pure. And although he's righteous and has a good standing with God, he doesn't grasp onto that simply for himself. He says, I have salvation for you. He's a good king who would be willing to give up his own life so that you and I could enjoy this righteous relationship. We could have this salvation with God. And Zechariah 9 and 10 give this beautiful description of his kingdom and his conquest. He says that he'll cut off the chariot, the war chariot, the war horse, the battle bow. And usually what would happen is that if a nation decided we're going to completely get rid of all of our militaristic might, all of our weapons, they are completely going to be destroyed, that nation would probably be destroyed shortly afterwards. As everybody turns and goes, they can't defend themselves. Let's go and attack. But instead, what we see here is that his kingdom is still completely victorious. He says he will speak peace to the nations. And his kingdom will continue to advance and to expand from the river to the ends of the earth. From seas 
to seize. He's going to continually grow his kingdom. And in verse 11, he says, because of the blood of my covenant, I will set the prisoners free from the waterless pit. What a beautiful promise. As these people are welcoming Jesus in and they're saying, Jesus, can you set us free from the Romans or from the Greeks or from all of these other things? Jesus' answer is, oh, far better, my friends. Not only from them, but Lord, I will, he says, I will set you free from hell for all of eternity. All you need to do is believe in me. What will it be that saves this person from the waterless pit? The blood of my covenant. Not another list of laws. Not these long rules and these things that we can never keep. Simply believe, my friends. Come to this loving king who is completely triumphant. Believe in him and be washed by his blood and you will be saved and set free from the waterless pit for all of eternity. Tis is, is his promise. My third and final point for today is that Christ triumphs while his enemies despair. Verse 16 to 19 in John 12, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What happens in verse 16 is that the disciples only realize much later on when Christ is risen from the dead that everything that was written about Jesus has been completely fulfilled. That he certainly is the Messiah. This is the one we were watching for. And this is the one who is completely fulfilled. But then he goes on to say in, in verse 17 and 18 that this crowd of people continued to bear witness. What that means is that before they even got to Jerusalem, they were telling each other and everybody along the way, this is what Jesus has done. It is massive. And they come to Jerusalem, they hear the threats of the Pharisees, and they don't care. They carry on and they continue to bear witness. This is what the Lord Jesus has done. And this is significant because of everything that the Pharisees have tried to do to stop them. They have tried everything. They've looked at Jesus and they've said, he's a drunkard. He's a glutton. Do you see how he feasts with tax collectors and sinners? If this man were really a prophet, he would know what sort of people those are. They go and they try and push him off a cliff at one stage. And Jesus escapes them. They say whenever Jesus performs a supernatural miracle, they say, ah, but the reason why Jesus can do this is because he's got Beelzebub living inside him, the prince of demons. And it's by a more demonic power that actually he performs his miracles. They completely malign Jesus. They say terrible things. And they try their utmost to push everybody away from Jesus. And they've even gone so far as to say, if you say that anything is special about this man, Jesus, we will excommunicate you from the temple. Big part of their culture was coming to the temple, enjoying worship and the public reading of their texts. And the Pharisees say, we will have none of it. You will be thrown out forever. And yet, what do you see in light of everything that the Pharisees have thrown at Jesus and at anybody who might try and follow him is that in our passage today, the crowd couldn't give rocks about the Pharisees. They couldn't care less. They show them the same respect that they showed the palm trees. They riff off the branches and they welcome Jesus in. Their hearts are completely open to Jesus. 
And they say, regardless of any sort of persecution that comes our way, this man raised the dead. This man has real wonder-working power working within him. We're going to follow Jesus. We don't care what the Pharisees have to say. And they keep on continually bearing witness about one thing in particular. Jesus raised the dead. It is a powerful sign. Nobody else is going around raising the dead. And what is significant is that Jesus, by this stage, has now prophesied three times that he will go to Jerusalem, that he will be raised up on a cross, he will die on that cross, but that he himself will also be raised from the dead. And so as this crowd is going wild and they hear about Lazarus being raised, they remember something that Jesus said earlier on in John chapter 10, verse 18, speaking about his own life. He says these words, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father, triumphant king, completely loving, and the author of life himself. He is victorious. And so needless to say, the Pharisees find themselves looking at this whole situation and they are completely despairing. They are hopeless. They have no clue what else they could possibly do to stop Jesus. And so their next bright idea is, maybe we should crucify him. Maybe we should kill him. Perfectly playing into the plan that God had set for his people to be redeemed hundreds and hundreds of years before this. There is no man that can thwart the plans of the living God. None. They've tried everything and their final plan is just to fulfill the ultimate plan of salvation that God has had for his people. And what is beautiful to see is that John, who writes the Gospel of John here, and who physically saw this crowd welcoming Jesus in with their palm branches, sees something else wonderful and spectacular in the book of Revelation. As we look a little bit past what happened there, and maybe even a few, a few hundred years past where we are today, this is what is written in Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10. The victory continues. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Absolutely wonderful. As they started off crying, Save us, we pray, save us, Lord. As He comes into the city, they find themselves one day part of a multitude, a massive crowd full of people saying, Salvation belongs to our Lord. He has kept every word. He has fulfilled every promise. And what you find that is different in maybe their attire is that this time they are robed in white robes, completely pure, completely atoned for because of what Christ has done for them. And so as I wrap up this morning, my question to you is, will you be part of that great multitude in heaven? Will you be just like these people, saved from every nation, tribe, and tongue, standing before God and saying, salvation belongs to our God, filled with hope in this life, filled with hope in the life to come as Christ continues to victoriously expand his kingdom? Or will you be on the same part as those of the Pharisees in the world who are completely despairing in our text? And as your life goes on, you continue to despair as you don't know what happens when you die one day. Are you covered 
by the blood of Jesus. And some of us might think, you know, we, as human beings, we so often try to just earn something. We don't like the idea of free handouts and just getting something for nothing. But let me tell you, my friend, there is not a single thing that you'll be able to do with a hundred lifetimes that will earn eternal life and salvation and relationship with God in His presence. Not a single thing. It is completely by grace that you take this gift and you enjoy it, or it is never going to be enjoyed by you at all. Do not make the mistake that Naaman the Syrian almost made. What happened with Naaman the Syrian in the Old Testament is he was a Syrian commander and he had leprosy, and he doesn't know what to do. Leprosy would end up killing him if he doesn't do something about it. So he goes to Elisha, the Lord's prophet. And he says to, well, he doesn't even get to see Elisha, but he comes with these ideas of what great feat of strength must I do to get rid of this leprosy? How much money, how much gold or silver do you want? How many changes of clothes do you want so that I can be free of this leprosy? Elisha does not even go out to meet Naaman. He sends a messenger. And the messenger says, the prophet of the Lord has said to you, go and dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. You'll be cleansed. Naaman is furious. Naaman does not like what's just happened. He says, the, the prophet hasn't even seen me. He hasn't even seen how bad my leprosy is. He doesn't even know what's happening. He hasn't waved his staff over me. He hasn't called out in the name of the Lord for me. He just tells me to go and do it. But as he leaves, one of his own servants challenges his heart. He says, Naaman, has the prophet not spoken to you? Are you not to be obedient to what he has said? Perhaps it will be that you will be cleansed and you'll be saved by simply being dipped into the Jordan River. And the end result is that he goes to the Jordan River and he is dipped and he's completely cleansed and his skin is renewed. No more leprosy and he's completely healed. My friends, if you are sitting here today and you have sin in your life that is not covered by the blood of Jesus, you have something far worse than leprosy. It has the capacity to continually, forever, keep you out of the presence of God, eternally removed. And what will it be that saves you is not doing some great feat of strength or trying to earn your way into God's books by doing good things, but rather that you would go and be dipped in the blood of Christ and you will be completely cleansed of all of your sin and you will find yourselves with me and many others, part of this great multitude, shouting and declaring, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God. If you are a Christian, I'm sure you know what your part is to play. You are just like this crowd in this day. You are just like the crowd that is mentioned afterwards in heaven. Continue to bear witness to what Christ has done in your life and for you. Continue to, in the light of many persecutions, in the light of the Pharisees of our day, to love radically and to proclaim the gospel that is able to save a person's soul for all of eternity. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you are our triumphant king, that you make yourself available to us, that you have done it all, that it is not some great feat of strength that we have to do to be saved, but rather, Lord, we just need to come to you and believe in you, and we will be saved. I pray for us, Lord, that we would be just like this crowd who continually bear witness to everything that we've seen, to everything that we've experienced in your goodness. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up many people from this church. Lord, if there's anybody who doesn't yet know you, I pray that they would come to know you for the very first time today. 
I ask this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. As promised, there are palm crosses. I just want to say thank you so much to the the elderly ladies' Bible study who made these for us. You have blessed us with these. Thank you for this. They are going to be waiting at the back of the church. What is really wonderful as well is remember that those palm leaves represented victory and peace. How wonderful is it that we can fold it into the shape of a cross, which is also representing victory and peace of Christ. So if you'd like, they are at the back there, I believe, Mark. Is it one per family? One per person. One per person. Wonderful. Thank you so much for blessing us with these. Have a wonderful